to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 63. At the age of just 23, Louise Worrell was a navigator in the Royal Navy guiding a mine hunter around the globe. It was her dream job, but just a year or so later, her naval career was suddenly cut short by a previously undiagnosed disability, the effects of which rapidly escalated before she knew what was wrong. Louise's story of how this affected her and how she now approaches life in a new role as a financial advisor is, it's a very overused word, but in this case, it truly is inspirational. It was a great pleasure to interview Louise in front of a live Scottish Business Network audience on Zoom on March the 16th, 2021. If you enjoy this interview, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Music, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. Louise, a very warm welcome to you. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> Good to see you. Right, I was just thinking that we've had uh, a whole range of um, kind of disciplines represented in the masterclass so far. I'm pretty sure you're the first person that we've had who's an expert in navigating Royal Navy vessels. Um, <laughs> that's quite a thing to have on your CV, so we're really looking forward to hearing about that. We're also uh, keen to hear about how your career has changed as a result of the um, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that you've got. And, and I know you've got some really interesting thoughts on inclusion and diversity in the workplace. So it'd be great to, to hear from you about that as well. So let's start by finding us, um, you know, where, where in the world are you at the moment, Louise? And as this endless um, pandemic crisis, crisis goes on, how has it been for you both professionally and personally? I'm in beautiful sunny Dumbarton on the west coast of Scotland, as you can tell by my beautiful Scottish accent. Um, I've been up here for about eight years now. Um, I have to admit that this pandemic for myself personally, I found it quite beneficial. Um, Being disabled, I used to run my business partially remotely anyway. I work across the whole of the UK and I was constantly traveling to London around Scotland, as far as Cornwall, which when your mobility isn't great, it's not very easy. So since everybody has embraced working virtually and online networking, like we are now, all goes into a virtual space, it's actually made things a lot more accessible for me. So from my point of view, I've actually benefited from everyone embracing doing things virtually. I'm not saying I can't wait to see humans again, but for now, I'm, I'm very lucky in that working like this is quite disability friendly. So from that point of view, it's been, it's been okay. Well, that's good. Um, now, you are, of course, uh, you may not have the Scottish accent, and I share that uh, similarity, but uh, you're very much an adopted Scot. But you grew up in Basingstoke in, in Hampshire. So can you tell us a bit about your childhood, your, your upbringing, maybe some of the personality traits you may have inherited from your parents? I grew up in Basingstoke, south coast of England, and at the time, I thought the weather was awful. Then I moved to Scotland, and I worked out, oh, wait, maybe not. So I had a very standard childhood, um, and looking at traits that I got from my parents, I think they did have a really big impact on where I am today. They are incredibly resilient, and I think that's a great thing to pass on. But the thing that I take away from my childhood the most is their completely unwavering support of what I wanted to do. And at the time, when you're a teenager and growing up, you don't appreciate actually how much free reign 
you've got to get and how much trust in you you're getting. Um, when I was 17 and I decided, right, I'm joining the Navy now, I had no qualms coming home telling my parents, oh, look, here's my application forms. I'm joining the military. I'm a 17-year-old woman and I'm going because I knew that whatever I did, whatever I put my mind to, I would have that support. And I'm very lucky in that sense. And I still get that support now. Everything I try, um, I, I get, I know that I've got the backing of my family, which is great. That's a, a wonderful thing to have. And, and talking about your, your career, I mean, looking at it on paper, it does look a little bit unconventional because you've got your history degree, then you've got your, your time serving in the, in the Royal Navy, and now you're a financial advisor. But there is actually a kind of logic that, that goes through that. And I believe you had a bit of a, a key moment um, as, as a child when you decided that this, this route into the Navy is what you really wanted to pursue. Absolutely. And I completely blame my parents for this. When I was four years old, on my fourth birthday, uh, I was very privileged and I was allowed, I was able to go on my first ever cruise. And I remember getting on Canberra, which is a beautiful ship. She was, she was in the Falklands as a hostel ship. I like ships, you might have got that. Um, and I realised, okay, that's it. I'm going to become a sailor. I always had that ambition from that moment onwards. And when I was seven, my dad took me to Navy days. And I realized, wait, I can't be just any sailor. I'm going to be a Royal Navy sailor. So it was from this time when I was four, I realized I'm always happiest when I'm on or near the sea. And it never changed. When I was seven, it became a bit more crystallized in that I decided it was the Royal Navy and I wanted to serve my country and go to sea in that way. And it was just through a love of the water, knowing that was my happy place. And so it was never, I, I always had that, oh, I could be a marine biologist, I could be a doctor, I could do all these things. But it was always coming back to becoming a sailor, which I then went on and did. Uh, and as having joined the Navy, you, you, as part of that, you studied history, I believe, at the University of Southampton. So that's an interesting choice of, of subject. Why did you choose that and what do you think you gained from it? I joined the Navy when I was 17, so prior to going to university. So I chose history because I like it. I find it interesting. And to be a warfare officer in the Royal Navy, you do not need to have a degree. I was very lucky in that I did well in my selection and they said, here's your job. In 2011, you will be going through Britannia Royal Naval College. Now you have three years to go and grow up, become an educated human with a degree. So I chose history. I do feel that there is a lot of underlying skills, though. And the reason I chose history specifically is because I did have a backup plan for if I ever left the Navy. I was aware that plans sometimes change. And as such, I needed to know what I was going to do. I figured that I would go into law and I would go into maritime law. And in order to go into that... I did a couple of work experiences in London with law firms, and I found out that having a humanities degree, such as history, and making it into a law degree is a really good grounding to go into the industry. So I knew that if I had that in my back pocket, if I ever left the military, I would go down that route and requalify as a lawyer. Clearly that didn't happen, but the skills that I got from my degree, I am still able to use in my job now, funnily enough. It, it sometimes seems like it's all person and maths based, but I learned how to 
analyze inf information, synthesize it, interrogate, uh, interrogate the provenance and the source and why the information exists in the first place. And that's really important to, to do in finance. So it doesn't sound logical, but there was logic behind choosing to do a history degree. Well, I, was, uh, I think this history is one of those subjects actually it's useful for just about every aspect of human life, isn't it? Because there's so much we can learn from the past. So just to, to get this kind of uh, in context of time. So this, by 2013, you were leading a navigation department on a, a mine hunter, which sounds a pretty responsible role. So what does that actually involve, Louise? And, and did you receive much, I mean, we're talking about inclusion and, and diversity and so did you receive much resistance from male colleagues as you sort of grew into that position? The role of navigator is quite important when it comes to naval ships in that any time they are not attached to land, they are somewhere because the navigator said they can go there. If you are operating in close contact with any other vessels, civilian or wartime, it has to be the navigator taking the ship. The navigator, I say she, me, or he, they have the ultimate responsibility for the safety of the vessel under the captain when it comes to navigational safety. So when you're talking about West Coast of Scotland, we've got the mine hunters up here. A lot of naval vessels do exercises up here because stunning, stunning coast, very navigationally tricky. There's some very interesting seaways up here and um, I've experienced a lot of them, uh, not for the faint of heart, I'll say, but that is all down to the navigator planning, looking at the maths, looking at sunrise, sunset, the movement of the tide and how that will impact the ship. It's not just the ship that you're trying to protect, which is millions of pounds worth of hardware. Well, more than that, especially with you're looking at the 45s and some of these really high tech vessels that you're getting now. It's all the people on board. You ultimately have responsibility for the safety and the lives of everyone on board. You and the captain are the two that have navigational responsibility. So at 23, that was something I really wanted to do well. So it was a lot of pressure, but it's something I've wanted since I was four. And so technically I've been preparing for it since I was four. With regards to male colleagues and how that sort of impacted my career, by and large in the Navy, being a woman, I never noticed it, to be honest. I was treated the same. I got on with my crews. I have been on stag ships. They call them stag ships when the entire crew are male and I was the only woman and they treated me with respect, but not in a way that they changed how they acted. My husband was on submarines before women were able to serve on submarines. So I've heard what it's like and the behaviour didn't change drastically, which was good because I was involved with my crew that I lived, fought, worked, did everything with. So I never noticed it from my male colleagues. What I did do though in the Navy was I traveled a lot. And this included places such as Libya. I went out to Germany, the Middle East, and I've also been to the East Coast of Africa. So these were the times that being a woman was different. And I think that is the thing that is pertinent, especially today, looking at diversity and inclusion globally, is that it was the global 
aspect of being a woman that had a bigger impact. And I've got a couple of examples of that. I took HMS Echo, uh, which is a hydrographic vessel. She does surveys. It's all very important stuff. And I took her through the Suez Canal. We had quite a few women on board, probably about five out of 60. So high proportion of us. Um, and at the time I was training to become a navigation officer. This wasn't my first year. Uh, this wasn't my navigation department. So I was in training. So they let me do a lot of things. The Suez Canal takes a long time to go down and you have to take on Egyptian pilots. Pilots are the people that come onto ships. They have understanding of the waterways and they take you through these things such as Panama Canal, Suez, safely. You have to have one embarked. We had three during our transit of Suez and not one of them would talk to me because I was a woman. And the funny thing was, I was the one driving the ship. I had control of the ship. Any emergencies would come under my command. I have someone sat in front of me literally at the ship's wheel, who takes commands from me, and that is how the ship moves. They literally would not talk to me. They would only talk to my QM, my quartermaster, who was a Navy, a rating, who would be doing the driving, really important role, but they have no control over where we go. They have to go where I say. So that was really fascinating, just the way culture was and the way gender is approached differently in different cultures had a huge impact on how we were treated. Another example I can think of, especially in the Southern Mediterranean and going out into the Indian Ocean, is for women, there are times and places where we cannot make radio communications coming into ports in Oman. Although I would be navigating the ship, I had to have one of the other male officers make all the communication calls on the radio because the minute any of them heard a woman's voice, all of the other sailors on all the other vessels on that on that um, frequency would jeer or they would make comments and they would swamp the radio. So safety signals, understanding when you're coming in, it just wasn't worth it. But that wasn't, it wasn't bad. It's just what they know. It's different cultures. It's different to what we know. And so... That's fine. It's what you do in these places because culturally, that's how it works. We went dune bashing when we went into um, Dubai and our driver was male and he, he, he kept looking at me. He's like, you're a woman. Does your, does, your, does your partner, does your husband know you're in the Navy? I was like, yeah, my husband's in the Navy as well. And he, he just could not get his head around it. But in a friendly way, he just said, I can't imagine my wife working. You work and it was just really interesting to see the different approaches different countries and cultures have towards women so sorry that was a very long-winded answer oh, it was a very interesting answer so thank you for that and it, I mean it sounds a, a fascinating job I mean 20 is 23 quite young to be uh, given that amount of responsibility it seems, seems like you've, you did pretty well to get promoted so quickly and also I'm just wondering you know over your, your time in the Navy, and particularly in this role, what were the, the kind of highs and lows of that period for you? I was promoted quickly. When you finish your training, you go through quite an intensive two-week assessment. It assesses all the skills that you've learned over the last two years. If you fail, you leave the Navy. 
it's a very stressful time. If you come out at about top 5%, then you stand a chance of jumping a job and becoming a navigator. I jumped a job and became a navigator. I was in the top 5%. I actually came top of my course and was awarded, um, there was a small prize for coming top. So I know that I I beat all the guys. Um, But I was very lucky that my work had been noticed and I didn't crumble under the pressure in the dark simulator. Everyone's looking at you. You know your entire career depends on what you say there and then. And luckily, it went well. Um, From there, I jumped straight up to the navigation course, which was, as you said, it was a bit odd because I was along with people that had been at sea for two years in their first job. I'd never had my first job as such as train strength. I was like, "Hmm, okay, so you're talking about things I have no idea about because I haven't served my first job on a frigate. I'm just going straight to a mine hunter to take a nav department. The second half of the interview continues in a few seconds after this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E and comms with two M's. Regarding highs and lows, there's so many highs I had throughout my career, but it was very much like Marmite in that it is incredible. It is one of the most incredible things you can do is join the military and serve your country. But equally, it's hard, long hours, and I was struggling with injuries throughout my entire career that I didn't know was an actual thing. I just thought my body kept breaking One of the things that sticks out for me was after my navigation job and sort of overlapping, I was chosen to become the naval aide-de-camp to the Lord High Commissioner. And I lived in Holyrood House for a week uh, during the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And that was incredible to be part of the Royal Suite and understand that element of culture and life up here. So that was definitely a high, running around all the, um, the, the passages of the palace that are usually shut off to get visitors and you're running around and you've got free reign of a royal palace, but you've got to be in the right place at the right time and make sure that the um, the Lord High Commissioner is in the right place. But that, that was brilliant. That was a high. Below was definitely being flown off my ship when I couldn't stand upright anymore. And my captain said, you have to go back alongside. I can't have you on the ship. If you can't stand, you can't safely command the vessel. I was 24, I think, 25 almost. So I was still young. I just achieved my lifetime ambition, my dream job. And suddenly it was taken away. And I didn't know the extent of it then. It all led to years of medical treatment at Headley Court. Um, And over those years, I just lost more and more of my mobility and I lost my career but it was that one point being flown off the ship Mm. and knowing that's my ship that's my nav department and I'm being removed so that was certainly the low point that was the point everything changed and presumably you didn't know what was wrong with you at that point did you was it a mystery so it must have made it even worse yes I cannot explain how bad it is to know something's wrong and not know why Mm. um I wasn't diagnosed until 2019. 
I left the Navy in 2017. So it still took two more years after I'd left to find out what was actually wrong with me. Right. Could you explain to us what what the condition is and and the impact it has? Absolutely. Um, So I have a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, There's a family of disorders. They're genetic. My genes basically don't work properly. And collagen, which is the protein that it's your glue, it holds every part of your body together. Mine doesn't work. So essentially, I'm just really bendy. And that means my muscles, my ligaments, nothing's holding together properly. And that's every system in my body. I always had symptoms. They were mild. And when you look back, knowing what you know now, you can tell oh wait when that happened it was because of this but at the time you never put two and two together going into the military unfortunately because of the way that my ligaments muscles musculoskeletal system works or doesn't work being in the military doing all that physical stuff being at sea standing up for literally days on end it's not a great idea. I don't recommend it to anyone with Alessandros that's thinking about joining the military as much as I love the military. Unfortunately, I picked up injury after injury and it starts to build up and it starts to cause more and more damage. And it then became compounded by the fact that because we didn't know what was wrong and it's the military, you just exercise it away. And that compounded the issue because I was strengthening over an injury and making it worse. It was for those reasons that when I was at Headley Court, I eventually ended up on crutches. I've lost a lot of mobility and I have quite significant limitations that I will likely have at this level or potentially worse for life. Um, There's a lot of comorbidities. There's a lot of associated conditions that come with this um, in October last year, my stomach stopped working for two months. Don't know why. It wasn't nice. I was rushed to hospital. It wasn't easy, but it's just one of those things. They just say, it's just an EDS thing. So it's not a great condition, but it's learning to live with it. As soon as I knew what was wrong, there's no cure. I'm not going to get better. You can learn to live with it, adapt. My husband understands it now. So when I'm being silly and saying, I'm going to walk the dog today, and he's like, you can't stand, you're not going to walk the dog. It, it just helps uh, having that support there as well. And, and as well as, I mean, the, the obviously massive kind of physical implications for you, but I mean, mentally, as you're saying, being flown off the, the ship and, and trying to understand what was going on with you, how did you cope mentally uh, during that, that time? I didn't. It literally broke my heart. Um, I literally lost the dream that I'd worked to since I was four. My identity, I saw myself as a sailor. I was a sailor that ran. And then I was just someone on my own in Scotland that couldn't walk. At the time I came out of Headley Court on crutches, my family were 500 miles away and my husband was on a three-month patrol on a submarine. So I had no one. I was up here on my own, losing everything. So I wasn't coping particularly well. I found mechanisms. I threw myself into piano. I threw myself into um, riding for the disabled. I threw myself into anything I could to take my mind off the pain and the fact that we didn't know what was happening, the fact I was losing 
everything. <laughs> At the time, it was everything to me. I didn't know how I'd come out the other side. My husband was also still working in the Navy when I left. And it was hard to see him go to work in the uniform that I could no longer wear. But he actually left about six months after me for different reasons. And he still works in defence. He still practically does the same thing, but not in uniform. What I did to cope with it is I had to reframe how I looked at things. When I was riding, instead of thinking I've lost so much, I can't ride half as well as I used to because I can't use my legs, I started thinking, you know what? I've had this genetic condition my whole life. I've done well to get to this age and do what I did. I lost my career in the Navy. Had I known I had this condition, I wouldn't have been allowed in. I got to do it. I got to do my dream job. How many people can say that? I also reapproached how I saw myself within the community, the military community, veterans, spouses, families. It's just one big bubble doesn't matter if you're serving or not it's a bubble and I thought I'd left that but when I started to look at it I realized no I haven't I threw myself back into it I'm an armed forces covenant signatory I got the silver employer award I do a lot of financial education for the military I'm pushing to improve financial education for the forces across the UK and I'm doing that at quite a high level Within St. James's Place, the organisation I'm part of, I helped launch their military network. And I found new ways to be part of the military community without wearing the uniform. I'm a veteran. Additionally, I got to improve upon that because now I get to work with the maritime community as well. When you're in the Navy, you just have the Navy. But now I'm outside of that. I've got the Navy, I've got the Army, I've got the RAF. I've got the ferries and I've got shipping and I've got oil and gas and I can work with so many incredible communities that I specialise in because I understand the finance. I understand what the life's like. I know what it's like if you're an oil and gas family and your partner goes away and then comes back. I know what that's like. I've been away. My husband's been away. So I reframed what my identity was. I'm still a sailor. I'm just not at sea anymore. And I also reviewed how I would approach my position within the community. So that's how I dealt with it, even though I didn't deal with it very well at the time. I think those pilots on the Suez Canal really should have uh, had a proper conversation with you at the time. You could be helping them out with their finances now. Because you, Tell us about this move then. You're a financial um, advisor. So how did that come about? And, and tell us about, you know, what, what are you doing? But you're obviously doing a bit for people, particularly in the military, but how how does the whole thing work? So I mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation that I planned to be a lawyer when I left. When I was leaving the Navy and I went and said, hi, I would like to be a lawyer, please. I have a history degree. I realised that because of the extent of my disability, that was no longer an option. Actually, employment was no longer an option. I'm in hospital. I was in hospital on Monday for half a day. I'm in hospital, maybe I should become a nurse because I'm always there anyway. Um, Some days I don't know if I'm going to be able to stand up or not. And it's not feasible to work under the constraints of set hours if you don't know how your body's going to react one day. If I work from home and I can't stand, it's okay. I can crawl to my office from, from over there, it's fine. 
So I needed something that I could do at home in my own hours. I could adapt to whatever my condition was of the day, if I was in hospital or not, I could change my hours. I also wanted to do something that I could do, do well, and have a positive impact doing. I like maths, I like numbers, I was a navigator, that's, that's our jam, that's what we do. And I like people. I still, when I left, I didn't know what a financial advisor was, to be quite honest with you. I had one at the time, I didn't know I had one. It was never something I considered. My mother-in-law, she's been in finance her entire career, mentioned, why, why don't you become a financial advisor? Okay, so I looked into it. And it was perfect. It was everything I needed. I can do it from home. I can make a positive impact. I can do something. I can do it well. If I can show people that are facing life-changing injuries, that you can still do something that makes you happy, be successful at it, then that's great. That's what I want to do. So I also really like pensions and tax and that sort of stuff. I find it interesting. And someone has to. Let's admit it. Someone's got to find that sort of thing fun. So for me, it was a perfect fit. So it's going well. Um, and just moving forward a little bit now in terms of the, the discussion that's going to happen later on in terms of diversity and inclusion, you've, you've t- already told us some really interesting observations about your, your time in the Navy. Any other thoughts about the importance of, of these issues in the workplace and, and, and how you've, you've seen them play out? Throughout my careers, finance is quite male-dominated, Additionally, there's not a huge amount of disabled people that you see day-to-day in life doing stuff either. In the military, definitely male-dominated. Shipping, male-dominated. There's a theme here. What I realised, though, is that we all need to have the same ideal and outcome in our mind. It doesn't matter if I'm one of five women on a ship and I say, we need to all be doing this the same. If the men don't say, you know what, yeah, that's a great idea, I agree. Disability isn't massively understood still. That is one thing until I became it, I wasn't aware. So I completely understand why. And I think that that's something, opening the conversation on that, having the platform there, even now, me, you're here listening for some reason to me. We're opening conversation. Disabled people, physical disability, there's a lot of stigma around it, a lot of misunderstanding. not understanding of the ins and outs of it. I have value. I just go to hospital a lot. Um, And the other thing with this that I really love from the Navy is that diversity and inclusion, it means very different things depending on where in the world you are. And it's very culture-led. And having an understanding and respect of that and how to adapt to that, I think that is key to globally um, moving forwards in this area, which is perfectly feasible. It's just having that understanding that there are different cultures and approaches, and that's fine. We've all got different ways of doing things. Um, it's, It's just working and understanding, okay, this is how we do it, and this is how the Egyptian pilots do it. So I think I think that's important. Louise, you mentioned um earlier that you're got really involved with riding for the disabled so you tell us a bit more about that i am very passionate about riding for the disabled before i joined i didn't know it existed when i found out it was a thing i was a bit wait disability horses not really two things you'd naturally put together 
but I knew that there was one nearby. I used to horse ride before everything happened. And I thought, you know what? I can hardly drive my car. I can't walk. There's no way I can get on a massive creature and make it go somewhere. And so I just emailed and said, hi, I can't walk anymore. Can I come and be part of this? And they said, yes. And this was part of my coping when my husband was away, when everything was going downhill, I joined Rhino for the Disabled. And the community there, the riders, volunteers, it was like a big family. And the fact that I was able to do something, and then I was able to do it quite well. Then I learned how to ride without my legs. I learned how to do adaptive riding. So I was suddenly riding actually better than when I was able. I started doing competitions. I'm hoping now after, after the pandemic to go to national competitions for disability riding. And a couple of years ago, I became a board member and a trustee of my Gearlock Riding for the Disabled, and I do publicity. So I've been published nationally, writing about our little group, what we do. And I think it's incredible. And I've seen so much benefit for children as young as three, adults, older generations riding, being around the horses, just engaging with that environment, the physical benefit, the mental benefit, and just the community benefit as well. So I, I, I have a lot of respect and love for the Riding for the Disabled um, community. And I didn't know it existed, but now I do. I think everyone should learn about it. And is the piano playing going well? It is. Uh, for my third year, my parents got me a guitar, so now I'm trying to learn that. My oh, husband nice. really hates it. I didn't know about this before. You, you, you didn't mention this when we met previously, so otherwise I would have got you to play us a tune now. But yeah. I'm, about to, <laughs> I'm about to hand over to, uh, to Kendra to questions from the, the floor. But before we, we do that, um, you, obviously you're based in, in sunny Dumbarton. So what, what does Scotland mean to you, Louise? What, what, what do you like about the, your, your new homeland? I moved to Scotland with my husband because he was part of the submarine fleet, and so we had to. And now we're both civilians. We could go back to England and I don't really want to. It's beautiful. It's friendly. The quality of life is incredible. I'm looking out my window and I can see Dumbarton Castle. I can see hills. I can see the River Clyde. It is sunny sometimes up here. And I honestly can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be. The cities are incredible. The people are incredible. And my husband and I love it. So that's what it means to me. It's my homeland now. And at that point, Louise went on to answer questions from the audience. What a fascinating woman. Thanks very much to her, and thanks to you for listening. I'll be back again in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.